Welcome to season two of For the Love of Jewelers, a podcast connecting people engaged in the craft and industry of jewelry making. Brought to you by Rio Grande Jewelry Supplies and hosted by yours truly, Courtney Gray. While navigating through this time, we realize the need to stay home, be safe, and stay inspired. We are truly all in this together. I'm honored and excited to take you on this journey to discover not only the how, but why we make jewelry. My goal is not only to inform you, but to empower you by sharing the passion, perspective, and perseverance of your fellow makers and professionals in all facets of the craft. Let's dive in. Holly Gage of Gage Designs is a 2015 Saul Bell Design winner, recognized for distinction in jewelry design. She creates contemporary jewelry and teaches her unique techniques with a gentle blend of design instruction and technical proficiency. Holly brings her innovation, creativity, and gift of helping others find their artistic voice through classes, mentoring programs, and master workshops. She's a full-time jewelry artist, certified metal clay instructor, author, and conference speaker. Her jewelry and articles on techniques and design can be found in over 75 regional and national publications. Hi guys, today we have Miss Holly Gage joining me from Pennsylvania. Hi Holly, welcome. Hi Courtney. I'm so happy to have you and get to, to see you and talk to you. Holly's one of my favorite people, um, you guys, and I. there's so much that I want to share about her journey and her story with you. Uh, this could be a three-hour episode, but we're gonna keep we're gonna <laughs> keep it to an hour, <laughs> um, as best as we can. But uh, Holly, let's start again. It's so vast what I want to talk to you about, and looking at your your website and your blog, and just reading about you again, and refreshing what you're doing now, and uh, my knowledge of what you're doing now. But let's start at the very beginning uh, about how you became a jeweler and your first experiences with with jewelry. Can you share with us about that? I've always been drawn to making things, and I'm lucky that my mom noticed that, and I always went to art classes, jewelry classes. Um, I would ride my bike miles just to take a class. So I would say my first significant classes were when I was 13, and um, my mother had moved away at one point, and she, she had a store in a little village called Pegler's Village, which is like this little artsy area. And the, the gentleman next door, he was a jeweler who used to fix antique jewelry and take broken parts and recreate them into more modern pieces. And she got me a, an apprenticeship with him. So I always tell my students, I'm really darn good at polishing because that's what they have you doing for days and days and hours and hours. And every once in a while, you got to polish a stone or solder something, but got really good at, at just the grunt work <laughs> of polishing. Yeah, well, do you still have stains on your, your fingertips from those days? <laughs> you know what? I don't think as a jeweler you ever get rid of the stains. I don't think you do either. That polishing compound just really likes to stick around. Yeah. I know, but I did find um, there's something called gloves in a bottle. Oh. And if you put it on before you polish and things like that, it's easier to get out from under your fingernails. Really? Ooh, yeah. what a great tip. Gloves and a bottle. Yeah, it's I've, like I a... It's like a she. It's called a, a shielding lotion, and mm. it's supposed to be natural and all this stuff. But um, it, I think it helps. 
It I works. can actually wash off, wash off the grime. Although my hands always still look a little more wrinkly than any other person my age. Well, you're a jeweler. That's what we get. Yeah, I'm a jeweler. <laughs> so age 13, um, you began, was there something like significant that, did you see a piece of jewelry? You said your mother was kind of an influence with that as well. Geez, that's a good question. I mean, I, I remember at camp, I would, you know, that telephone wire that was coated with the colorful plastic. I, that, that's my for, first foray in jewelry, wire working with colored coated plastic telephone wire. And um, yeah, she belonged to an art center and she was taking a couple of, of ceramic classes. And I, I, I don't even remember what made me get drawn to metals, but I, I was, I was always just very drawn to it and making things. And, you know, after my apprenticeship with, um, his name was Tom Castor. He's still in business now up in, up in Lampertville. But I, I also had another apprenticeship with another young woman. And again, she did production work. So I got to do more than polish, although I did a heck of a lot of polishing there too, but hammering and fusing and things like that. And so that was another good experience, um, just just doing it in that production line mentality. Yeah, you learn a lot. You know, the repetition, I think, is actually, as Definitely. much as we don't like it sometimes, it's so beneficial in the long run, I think, just to get those mechanical repetitive skills that... You Absolutely. Need. You get down thing, you get things down pat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, multiple apprenticeships. Did you ever want to do anything else? Was there something else that caught your interest? That's pretty young to make a decision, 13. Actually, I've always been drawn to art. And I think it's because, you know, I had told you I was dyslexic. It, it's the way I speak to the world. Other people write or sing, you know, and things like that. That is the way I communicate the best. And so it seems like I've always been drawn to that. Yeah, and nothing else. That's interesting. Jeweler, born born to be a jeweler. Well, um, I don't know if it was just jewelry, but it was crafts and doing things with my hands and things. Yeah, and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, very cool. Did you did you have a period of time, Holly, where there was some, certain struggles or it was kind of hard to find your groove or your niche in the the industry? Want to? I'd love to hear if you had how you might have overcome those struggles. If so, I think it. You know, whenever you're breaking into something, um, it's great if somebody notices you. And I was lucky to have some of that going on. You know, if I would set up at one of the bead shows, which had the the metals classes and all kinds of things, some of the editors would walk around and so somebody might notice what I'm doing. Um, Tim McCrate gave me my first opportunity to teach at a conference. And so when somebody gives you that opportunity by just believing in you or seeing something in you, that's really a fabulous thing. So I think in respects that made things a little bit easier for me. But it, none of it comes without the hard work. None of it comes without putting yourself out there and asking, you know, is there an availability? Is there an opportunity? 
And for some reason, I haven't been afraid to do that. And I do stem that to one particular situation. Um, During the time that my kids were growing up, I was doing some graphic design on my own. And I was driving around and I was doing a bunch of small business stuff, like stuff I really hated doing. Like instead of designing logos and fun stuff like that, I was doing business forms and, you know, that kind of thing. And I saw a satellite location for Sunoco, which is a big petroleum you know, seller in our area. And I thought, what the heck, I'm, I'm going to approach them. And I had created a brochure for myself. I didn't even get a chance to print it up at that point. I took to my interview a, a prototype of the brochure. So it wasn't even done. And, you know, it was down in Philadelphia. So I don't live in Philly. I live in Lancaster County. So that's the outskirts. So I'm going into the big city and stuff like that and up the elevator into the high story building. And I think it taught me, like, if you don't go for something big, you'll never get it. If you say no to yourself, nobody can possibly say yes to you. So I think that taught me to stop going after all the little things that I think I could get and like dare to dream a little bit bigger. And I ended up getting that account. They ended up being a bread and butter account. So I was able to, you know, quit all the little stuff, the little piggly stuff that I was doing that I absolutely didn't like doing. And uh, so this was a good alternative when I when my kids were growing up and tools and things like that around the house aren't the easiest thing to have when you have little kids picking up everything. So that was my little hiatus from making jewelry. Awesome. And you just went and asked for it, just showed up and... I, I, I think it is. I think, you know, it was a lesson. I was scared out of my mind to go. I thought, no way I, was I going to get this account, but what the heck, she's taking my appointment. I made the call. And so it was a cool experience. And so I use that a lot as a teaching tool to people I mentor and say, look, if you, you know, people will say my things aren't good enough to go to this store or that store. And and I'll turn around and say, well, I think they're good enough. I think they should at least try it. The worst thing that could happen is somebody will say no. And, you know, but at least you tried it. You'll get over some of your nerves. I mean, failure is or not failure, but rejection is not fun. I mean, and it does happen and it has happened enough. (laughs) But if you don't try, um, the answer is always no. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And the worst, I love that. The worst they can say is no. (laughs) I know. Maybe there's worse things that somebody could say, but hopefully that's the worst possible outcome is, well, you're going to get rejected sometimes, but you know, you have to ask 10 times to get two yeses, I think, uh, with certain things. Yeah, it's something like that. And, it, you know, it could be true. You know, there's certain situations that, um, you know, you try for a show or something like that and you don't get in or you try for a book or something like you don't get in. I mean, there's so many competitors, so many other people doing this kind of thing. And sometimes it matters on who the jurors are. So even knowing the jurors and understanding them, look them up before you submit to a gallery, to a publication. Who were the jurors? 
you know, what is their sensibility? I mean, I know it shouldn't matter as much, but it does. <laughs> no, that's great advice. I think that's super smart. Um, so how many, you've, you've been highly published. I see your work in all kinds of magazines, books. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Is that the show up and ask for it or uh, submit and hope for the yes? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there, you know, there's always a lot of hoping and praying that, you know, please accept me, you know, but I think what I've tried to do is try to come up with something of my own that's different. Like most of the techniques that I teach are things that I've come up with. And because they're different than the next person, it makes it a little bit easier to be accepted because you're not submitting the same old thing that's being done. And so, you know, that's the challenge I put up for myself. And creating new work too, I guess. You have a lot of different lines and... Well, you know, I'm I'm very motivated by my students because I know that if I don't come up with something a little different, why take a class with me when they could take it with somebody else if, you know, if I don't have something a little bit unique or, you know, something slightly really cool about the the movement and kinetics or the way you set the gems are different, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Challenging yourself. I always was a big advocate for you need to make to teach. It's like we need to be creating so we can learn how to troubleshoot with our students. And, um, yeah, that's, I think that's super important. The hard part is fitting it all in, you know, well, that's true. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You, they push you to be more creative. They don't even know they're doing it. And then sometimes you're not getting in the studio because you're teaching. So it is a double-edged sword like that, but it's very rewarding when, when you see them come up with something that you wouldn't even think of. So they, the students really motivate me. You've been teaching a long time. What, when did you start the, your mentoring programs? I've been teaching for almost 25 years the metal clay, not, not quite. And I started mentoring about 10 years ago, seven years ago, something to that effect, because a lot of what I was doing in class was that. And I thought, well, this is just such a natural arm of what I do. And I wanted to extend doing that more. So what is, what kind of students find you or what kind of mentorees find you, Holly, would you say? Is there they in a certain place in their career? Are they, I, de- I definitely have a type. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always persona. <laughs> no, um, it's, it's interesting. I, I like to be open with students about experiences because creating is such an outlet for your emotions and the way you communicate. I try to bring that out of people. I, I think they... People are in this for a reason. It might be to make something pretty, but usually it's a little bit deeper than that. It's, you know, I'm relieving stress because of my day job. I'm, you know, I want to stretch myself. Uh, I want to have these messages in my jewelry. I seem to attract the type of person that wants to take it a little further. You know, I, I my husband was teasing me because... I had a couple classes, and in one class, I had two people that had short-term memory loss and one that could not hear. 
And both of them, by the time the class was over, the fact that somebody had enough patience to repeat and repeat, short-term memory was you're constantly going to repeat yourself. But if I know in advance what, what their issue is, I come right around first off, you guys do it okay, you know. And by the end of the class, one of them was just crying that she actually made something. And it was a simple little thing, but that reaction was like the juice of what I live for. <laughs> it was just really cool. Yeah, and everybody learns differently. If you're willing to, I'd love to talk to you more about, um, well, and you are so open book, Holly. It's one of the things I love about talking with you and a lot of people come through my school and my life who have suffered from, or wouldn't even say suffered from, but who have announced that they had some sort of dyslexia and that it, some I think used it as a barrier of like, well, I can't because, and I'd love for you to share about your experience. I was reading your blog, actually, if you don't mind, I might just read this little excerpt really quick. Um, and then I thought to myself after reading this, this woman is not dyslexic. <laughs> You're really good with words. Anyway, uh, what Holly writes about herself, she says, I'm a dyslexic contemporary jewelry sculptor, turning my greatest vulnerability into an asset. I've often felt frustrated with the slow, methodical use of written words, scratched out and rewritten to communicate an idea. However, my creativity, visual and spatial strengths and problem-solving skills bring me solace. These are the positive attributes, the flip side of dyslexia. It is the hidden gift providing me with a voice, allowing me to create in poetic visual form and to get lost in what my family calls Holly's world. I just loved that. And I, so I really wanted to, to share it. And isn't it weird to have somebody read it to you? <laughs> you know, for me to write something, it takes three times as long as the average person. I'm rewriting a bunch of tutorials because uh, the longer I teach the classes, something new always comes up. And so I rewrite my tutorials, making sure to add the new thing, add the new thing. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, so it takes me forever to write these tutorials, but they end up being like 12, 15 pages long by the time I'm done. Um, as far as, as far as being dyslexic for, I would say for 48 years, I did hide it. It was an em embarrassment. Um, oh, you go through school and, you know, somebody goes around the room and picks the students to read and I would count ahead and figure out my paragraph and practice it and, and all that stuff. And I, I told myself I was stupid to a certain extent, you know, always going to the back of the room to the slower reading group and that kind of thing. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with Robert Danzig. He's a, he's a jewelry artist. And he works in multimedia. And I met him in England when I was on a retreat in England. And he was talking about how he worked with some dyslexic students. And then there was a lot of overlap with the dyslexia and people with ADD. In those two groups out in the world want to claim all the creative people as their own. <laughs> they fight like, no, they're not dyslexic. They're, they have ADD. The thing about those two groups is they're highly creative and they can be really great problem solvers. They just do it differently than other people. 
So anyway, I'm in a bookstore and um, and this is like six months later, or a year later, I picked up a book called The Dyslexic Advantage. And it really, I, the reason why I picked it up, it had something to do with our conversation, my conversation with Robert Danzig, telling me about the positive skills and things like that. Well, I picked this book up and it was like light bulbs going off like strobe lights on the examples and what people dealt with. But it also talked about, you know, it talked about both sides, the challenges as well as the advantages of being dyslexic. So I thought, uh, being creative was compensation. Um, being able to pivot, like I'm really good if I can't find one solution, I'll pivot and try another solution. I thought that was because of the dyslexia, the problems of dyslexia, which it's actually the solutions of dyslexia. So it really changed my perspective of being all bad, you know, because it felt all bad growing up. You know, if it, even when I type on Facebook, I'll go back in an hour and go, oh, poo, I, I see a typo, you know. Um, even though I use Grammarly when, I, when I'm on social media, it doesn't just, it doesn't pick up subtle things. Like it doesn't pick up words being switched out sometimes. So anyway, um, my husband, Chris, sent me to a conference called the Dyslexic Advantage Conference. And I met a whole building full of people like me, and they were all touting their genius in so many ways, like their work with apes and behavior and being CEOs and things like that. And it was a whole different perspective, you know, and it was so hard for me to see any superpower in it at all because I was spending so much time beating myself up. So to see another perspective like that was so eye-opening and it made me be more open about myself um and I can you know I still am damning myself for all the stupid little typos or and things like that but yet I can now forgive myself going well you know it's not all bad <laughs> I've got some of this great stuff going and I'd like to think that they that it helped my career versus hurt it. I mean, yeah, when I write articles for publications and things like that, you know, good thing they have their ghostwriters there that will clean it all up and make you look good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we all need that. I mean, you know, so I think that's, so this was an early thing you discovered in school. Um, I, no, I didn't find out I was dyslexic until I was 48. Oh. All I knew is... Um, I was such a very slow reader. I was such a very, um, my comprehension wasn't great because what dyslexics do is we're always creative. So if I'm reading a sentence, um, that I would like to do something, the word would, even though it's used in one context, my mind starts to go off into a whole other tangent going, would, what could I do with would in my jewelry? You know what I mean? So everything seems to have a double meaning to it. So when you're reading that, that creative thing clicks in sometimes, which echoes some of the things that you'll see with ADD, but differently. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Weird and interesting. <laughs> oh, I don't know. We're all weird. Everything's weird. <laughs> but the neat thing about it is 
problem solving is is wonderful for me. Like when it comes to, you know, having to come up with a creative solution that's a little bit easier for me than maybe some other people. And um, and once you know what you can tap into, that's what the book and the conference did for me is knowing what I can tap into. Before, I didn't know what to tap into. Some of it, I was intuitively tapping into it. And others, I, you know, I was missing the boat because I had no clue. But now, everything, I have a stack of these books that um, if I find out somebody's got dyslexic, I give them a book. <laughs> Which is almost ironic because no dyslexic really wants to read a book. But it's the kind of one, book that you will devour because it will just... It highlights all the things, all the little stories. You'll you'll just sit there going, yeah, that's happened to me. That too. Yes, that too, you know. That's awesome. Well, good for you. You know, I mean, I can't imagine it took 48 years to kind of figure this out and the thought process shift when, the, when you did understand and begin to learn about the positive sides of this or the silver linings. Uh, And and the reason why you're seeing so many students with it is because creativity is is the flip side. Being a problem solver, creativity, those are the positive flip sides to it. And some people don't even realize that. Yeah. What's the book called that you hand out? Do you know it offhand? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The (laughs) The Dyslexic Advantage. Advantage. That's right. You mentioned that. Awesome. What a great resource. Um, thank you for sharing about that, Holly. I want to flip back to uh, PMC, Precious Metal Clay. And the you were one of the first to really play with this material in the beginning. Am I right in saying that? I can't say I was the first handful, the first. but I was really <laughs> behind. Yeah. yeah. We all didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> Trial and error and diving into the dark, you know. Mm-hmm. And this was around 2002. Is that right? Yeah. And that was the early existence of the material. Um, It's come so far since then in such a short period of time because it's a very generous and sharing community. It's not the kind of thing that people shy away from, you know, this this technique is so coveted and, you know, that kind of thing. They really, really like to share, and I think that's what's propelled it so far. And you said it wasn't a wasn't love at first sight, but that's the trial and error part, I guess, right? You want to share with us a little bit about that journey into PMC? Well, when I first picked it up, I had visions of beauty and what I had in front of me was so not that. Um, I think it was, it was thick looking and clunkety and I didn't know how to refine it. So yeah, I just wasn't able to manipulate the material well, and it wasn't until I learned how to dry sand it and dry carve it and things like that. You don't always have to work with the metal clay wet, and that realization of working with it dry as well was a big aha moment. And so it's it, for me, it's neater to work with. Like I can mold or sculpt something, and that's not until I go back and sand it and carve it and manipulate it with my hands that it actually looks like something. <laughs> yeah, it takes a little different type of finesse from coming from a metals background and polishing, like you said, and repair and restorative work. It's pretty different. 
It it is different, and the thing that I really like about it is metal smithing and metal clay work really well together. Like I use half of my, at least half of my metal smithing skills when I'm making the metal clay work. Um, all the bezel setting, all of the cold connections, all of that stuff um, is, is very much a part of the pieces that I'm working with now. When you're teaching the material, do you? Uh, what's the biggest struggle that you find for maybe more groomed silversmiths or metalsmiths, and who are trying to learn this material and shift into it? Well, I'll tell you. I think it's a preconceived idea of what it is because when it first came on the market, they were really firing it at at temperatures that were too low, and so some of the things were breaking, and. So obviously anybody that's serious did not want to use it because they heard about that. And when it got in the hands of real professional jewelers, we started making, uh, doing different practices and hiring the temperatures. And now that's not some, that's not so much an issue anymore where it was then. So now I'm, I'm really seeing a big shift of metalsmiths coming to it because you can really combine them well. You can solder um, a sculptural piece to a flat piece of sheet metal. And there's some things that you can do in metalsmithing that you can't do in metal clay and some things you can do in metal clay that you can't do in metalsmithing. But when you have them both, it's a beautiful marriage. Well, and learning the limitations, I'm sure, just takes time and, yeah malleability, <laughs> flexibility in more yeah. ways than one, right? Well, I think the thing is, if you're you're wanting to make a hard-edged box, you know, using a soft moldable material may not be, if you want to make a hard-edged textured box, well, that's your go-to. But if you want it to be a smooth, flat, shiny, you're going to be working a lot harder and longer with metal clay to do the same thing. So not that you can't do it, but you're going to work, you're going to really work it to get it the way you want it. Yeah. It's nice to have all those tools in your toolbox too. So it's, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, oh, I do want the sculptural slash square. <laughs> well, you do know we love our tools. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So the more the merrier. <laughs> that's right. Bring them on. We love all the, the shiny tools and the, the applications. I mean, just the ver- the variety in this craft is so broad of what you can well, accomplish. Well, it is. It really is. And um, I, I like power tools. Uh, we, we have a little um, saying at our house, you know, Chris likes the kitchen tools. He's really great in the kitchen. And I like my power tools, but the two should not cross. <laughs> Do not borrow my power tools for your household projects. Right. Yeah. And don't or... wash your jewelry in the sink. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So when I met Holly, you guys, um, it was, we were hosting a retreat with you and Chris and we had such a great time down here in Austin and Chris, what you guys offer is so unique and fun and mixing cuisine with this creative process that Holly teaches and Chris will cook the meals and we were able to sit around and get to know each other in a different way than most workshops. Um, yeah. How did that all begin? with you and Chris doing these retreats? Hmm. Uh, well, I teach at the studio and, and sometimes he would make lunch and then we just took it to the next level. And there's, um, 
I don't know, I saw some other artists doing retreats and I was like, well, I want to do that. But then, you know, I wanted him to do, he wanted to do the food and we're just a perfect match when it, when it comes to that, because we like the idea of sitting around a table and connecting with people. I, I think jewelry making is so much more than just the doing it's connecting with other people and I really like that aspect of it for instance like there there are people that have said to me well why don't you do videos why don't you just do videos that would be so easy for you well a it wouldn't be easy (laughs) it's not my forte but b it cuts me out of the equation I like connecting with people. You do a video and you're nowhere to be seen other than, you know, an image of you want. I'm not actually talking to people, connecting with people, having real life conversations, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I've shied away from the video making. Yeah, you do do a lot of um, online things, though, right? You meet with your students and your mentorees and in a virtual. Yeah, I I do. um, We have an it's it's a virtual environment and. We, I keep the classes really small. They're usually about five students at a time. And I'm teaching two classes a day. And we just talk and connect and they can interact with me. And especially during COVID, I mean, people needed some connectivity. So we would take the time to, you know, how are you doing? Check in with each other and then go, okay, we're putting all that stuff behind us and we're going to be creative and and you know up this energy in the room and and things like that and yeah it's really cool when you can connect with people like totally different time zones somehow I get that right um (laughs) even though you and I could get it right we got that right better than me Holly (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh I just laugh at that kind of stuff oh I know um, it's it's all we're all in different ones for sure. But yeah. I think it's cool when you're dealing with somebody across the world. And, and you know, I, I did a class with somebody from India where women really don't do this kind of work. It's for men. And so she was taking classes with me 4 a.m. in the morning, her mm-hmm. time. Normal time for me, but 4 a.m. she was sneaking it. And just to learn about her culture and why that's not acceptable, and what her parents wanted from her. And, you know, you have a lifelong friend. And then they're creative, and they're doing things. Like, the culture's so different, so the jewelry's so different. So that's really great exposure for both of us. Absolutely. That is so, that's so cool. 4 a.m. jewelry making with Holly. I like (laughs) it. Sign me up. Sign me up. That is, it is so neat to see what comes out of different backgrounds, different cultures, and the, you know, there's just so many different influences all around that the work is going to be different and uh, the approach for sure. That's really neat. And I love the virtual because you can meet with people all over the world, you know, who couldn't get to you otherwise. Well, it was very helpful when COVID started because I had been online, I've been online for seven years, so it wasn't new Mm -hmm. to me. And, And I was very thankful that I had that, that opportunity. And to expand your, expand your audience even further, and everybody's open to it now. Yeah, you know, we had to learn, right? So those of us resistant, I think, have, have uh, accepted this is definitely a whole new form of communication and learning. Um, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Well, at one point, I was traveling quite a bit, 
And as I get older <laughs> and my body says, well, you know, that's a little much. That's when I decided to go online. I had a health issue that that slowed me down. And so I still travel a little bit, but not quite as much. I mean, I was going a couple, it could be a couple times a month and it was just a little much. So now lot. I'm, yeah, now I'm yeah. a little bit more selective and, you know. Well, we have to be, I think. The deeper you get into your career and your life, the more we have to say no to things. And it's a common topic that comes up in these episodes for sure, Holly, is learning what to say no to and when. It's so hard. I'm not good at the, that word at all. Mm, yeah. Not, not good. Maybe we could just say not right now. Or... Well, actually, that that is a, you know, I, I, I often use that because I the, the one class I teach... I help people make their own jewelry line. And I think the problem with artists is that ADD kind of, I want to do this, I want to do that. Oh, I saw something shiny and want to add that in there. And when you're making a cohesive line of jewelry, you can't do that. You have to be a little bit more disciplined. It's almost like you have a definition of what goes in this line, what goes in another line, and they don't necessarily cross paths. So... Uh, that's my famous thing is instead of saying no to yourself, we don't want to snuff out any fires, but why don't you put it in your later folder and tell yourself, just not now. You can do it, but not today. <laughs> and then it sort of keeps them honed in on, okay, this is what I had in mind. This is the direction I want to go. And I will not divert today. <laughs> now, tomorrow's another story. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I do think it's a daily, we have to discipline ourselves with these daily reminders of, I'm not going to climb this mountain in one day. I'm not going to build it, this whole business in one day. You know, it's, it's a, a collection of small steps and day by day and just putting efforts towards a, towards your goal each day, you know. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, the guy that, the the artist that made up that little scribble of, you know, there's an arrow going straight to your goal and then there's a scribble going to your goal. I think I'm the scribbler. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> I'm the scribble achiever. <laughs> mm -hmm. what, what would you say to somebody who's who's struggling with that or saying to themselves, like, I have, I have to do it all. I have to, maybe we can do a little coaching together here. Holly is, you know... I've had multiple people come and just, you know, they feel like they have to get it all done quick. I think it's a matter of prioritizing and really taking a look at your list of to-do things and eliminating the things that really aren't serving you well like you think you are. And here's the simplest example I can give, but um, somebody might want a, a jewelry career. And so they have some ancillary things that they're doing, like they're working for another jeweler, stringing jewelry or whatever have you. So because they think it's in the same field, they think they're giving to their career. But the thing is, if they're doing teeny little repairs and stringing jewelry for another jeweler, they get no recognition for what they're doing. They're, they're an unknown entity as far as the, the end customer goes. So they're working for, what, uh, $10 an hour to string jewelry. To me, that's taking away from what you need to be doing, which is your own business and building your own reputation. So even though, quote, unquote, it's not, it's jewelry related, it is not, 
it's not propelling you and it's not helping you. So sometimes you need to get rid of those kinds of things and put something a little bit more juicy in there that does propel your career. And, you know, that $10 an hour, oh, that sometimes that drives me crazy what people are paying themselves. I'm, I'm always like, well, you could work for McDonald's and make more money than you're paying yourself. Like, would you even take a job for $15 an hour at this point, but yet you're paying yourself $10 an hour? I, I don't, you know, so I, I, when I make that McDonald's reference, I think they get the point like, oh, you're right. I'm not treating myself very well. Right. <gasps> I, I think some makers are, and especially those starting out may think that that's like paying their dues or, you know, I'm going to learn by working at this other business. And I, I think there is value to that. Um, but yeah, I don't think the living wage is where it could be, you know, for makers. Well, we need to mark it up, everybody. I definitely agree that there are certain skills, that foundation skills that need to be learned. Uh, I think I'm talking about a person that was very much past those foundation skills. And instead of feeding their skill set, went to that next level of skills that they might want, they see quick money. And that quick money, if you made a piece of jewelry and sold it, could make you so much more than that, that behind-the-scenes job that you're doing. So I'm not saying anybody that works for somebody else is a bad thing, but I'm, I'm saying you want to really take a look at your list of things that you're doing and be a little bit more discriminate about those things. Yeah, yeah, discern discernment about yeah what absolutely. you take on you know what's serving you now in your career too because that changes you know we have chapters and growth patterns and we've got to follow you know follow the that for sure I think change is hard for people <laughs> uh, yeah I would say you know it's it's stressful no matter if it's a good change or or a you know a bad change so. um, Holly one of the things that, that reconnected us I think after years of, of you coming to teach with me and spending time at my home and my meeting my family when the boys were just little bitty but uh, was was a, a traumatic event that or I try to think of them as life events um, and you and I've talked about the language around this and perspective but I wonder if we could share with the community about the silver linings of, of this event um, as much as you're comfortable talking about about what what came up in your life a few years ago uh, with Chris. And um, and also, let's point out the really amazing life event was you becoming a grandmother recently, right? Yes, I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> have you been called grandma yet? Is that a thing? <laughs> Is it weird? I think that my kids, not my grandchildren, are gravitating towards Gigi. Oh, I like because I, I couldn't go with Grandma Gage because somebody, you know, Chris's mom who was passed was Grandma Gage. So I couldn't do that. Uh, so they came up with Gigi and I have a feeling they're going to make it stick. <laughs> yeah, but he's a cutie. I mean, that's an instant. Oh, anybody that's a grandmom can tell you it's like an instant smile on your face. Like, doesn't matter what's going on in your day. You see that little this little guy and it it's just a, an amazing happy feeling. Congratulations. It's so exciting. Yeah. Is it like seeing your own child, would you say, or same but different, I'm sure? 
Not not even a little bit, really. I mean, I don't have to discipline him. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, it's all joy and, you know. Uh, I poop. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do any wrong. <laughs> that is fun. You can see so. where this relationship is going, right? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. The spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's hard-earned, but... Um, so yeah, I would love to share about this post-traumatic wisdom that, that came up in one of our conversations, uh, uh, with what happened with Chris and Ryan, uh, was two years ago now. It's, it's three, three years ago now. So it was right around the time that I had an event as well. And I think you and I both connected through that event and I was watching your posts and reading about your updates with, uh, with an accident that happened and. And our house had burned down at that time, and I thought, nobody got hurt here. And, man, Holly is just going through it, and we all need to support her right now. And I, the amount of community that showed up for both of us, I think, during that time was so empowering and really reiterated what a powerful community we are in as um, jewelry makers and jewelers. But um, I wonder if you could share this event with and, and some of the takeaways yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more that our the community that we belong to is just absolutely incredible. And I don't say it lightly when I say I, I probably couldn't get through it in the same way with without that support. But um three years ago my husband and my son well actually four years ago, they, they bought a um a gourmet food truck and decked it out and, you know, put everything that they, and it, it took them about 10 years to actually develop this. I mean, it was a dream and a year into it, there was a propane leak and a huge explosion. My son was inside the truck and my husband was at the door of the truck and they both sustained pretty deep burns and things like that were flown to the hospital in Philadelphia, Crozier Hospital. Those people are fabulous. And they were there for quite some time recovering. The initial part of that is I had no idea that they were going to recover. Nobody would say they're going to make it, you know. So there was a lot of this crazy who nobody knew what was going on. And um, I felt like I was playing a detective as I was calling up anybody that was at the scene getting one little piece and another little piece and the detective and calling the, till I finally was able to pull all the pieces together. Um, Where I was at at the time is I was teaching a class. So it was in my studio and right in the middle, you know, I, I got this call and I left everybody here and everything. You know, one of the students who, um, who actually is my in-law now, my daughter and my son, son-in-law, that's his mom. She drove me down to the hospital and, uh, again, just left everybody here, you know, in a, in a crazy tizzy. And um, so anyway, several months of recovery, lots of operations. Um, my son is scarred, but not as badly as my husband 
but Chris has scars all over his his chest and his upper arms and things like that. And nobody can see it. It's all under his clothes. So it's that hidden scar syndrome where people d- have no idea what's really going on for you because they don't see it. So he had a big gash in the back of his head and he lost um, sight in his one eye. Well, 40% of his sight in one eye. So anyway, so we talk about, you were talking about the post-traumatic growth and it's the most really crazy thing because we are so ingrained with post-traumatic stress disorder and the people in the field of post-traumatic growth, which we are, are getting pretty involved in now, are, you know, you never hear about growth. You always hear about the disorder, and I don't even know why they call it a disorder because it's not something that that was a part of you prior than this event happening to you. So it's something that happened to you. You couldn't control it or plan it. So the reason why we started to look up what it is is these just really cool things started happening for, for Chris. I mean, he had this incredible energy. He took up a new career of rock cutting, which, you know, he really had to completely reinvent himself after the accident. And just to watch him go, you know, I totally expected him to be completely depressed. And how am I going to motivate and cheer him up and and all those things? And it was so the opposite of what happened. He's energetic. He's very involved in things. He tries so hard to have a really good relationship with my son because they lost everything. You know, they lost everything that they had together. They had to redefine who they were as human beings. I mean, at the age of, you know, when you're young, it's not as hard. But when you're the age of 50-something, that that's a... That's a bigger deal to reinvent yourself. And I just could not believe the positivity that came out of him, how he treated the nurses and the doctors. He, he didn't complain at all. And that's not because he wasn't in pain. It was because, you know, he felt so much gratitude towards the people that were taking care of him. And um, it, it was an incredible transformation, and it made me want to know, okay, how is this even possible? You know, you're supposed to be depressed and not be able to get up and do things and, and things like that. And he was so the opposite of that. So we started looking it up and say, is this something? Like this just, you know, he had suffered, you know, some setbacks during the business. It was their first year. So maybe a little um, depressed about some of those things and, and whatnot. And the the person that came out of the fire is just completely different. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have struggles, because he does. He, um, you know, he'll look in the mirror and he'll just be completely disgusted with what he sees. And so I'm the person <laughs> that says, you know, you better honor those scars because without those scars, you, you wouldn't be here. I mean, he had grafts from other parts of his body. And without that, he wouldn't be here. So, you know, you may not like the way they look, but this, 
they are your strength. They became his strength. And so that perspective, it just is, is really cool. So I did a weird thing. <laughs> you? never. <laughs> I did a weird thing. And I said, would you mind if I molded one of your scars? And so I took this two-part molding compound and um, I pressed it on his skin and I got an impression. So it sort of looks like reticulation. And so I made a piece of jewelry for him and I inscribed the back of it. And it, so it's, a, it's, his, it's his scar. And I called it warrior scar jewelry. And don't you know, I, I can't call it a typo because I hand engraved it. But I, I spelled the word scar wrong. I added an e, e in there. So for the rest of his life, he's got to have, he, he's, a, he's got warrior scares instead of warrior scars. But anyway. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I made it this piece of jewelry, and he can see the beauty in the jewelry. And we talk a lot about the value of the scars Yes, you cannot tell a burn survivor that, oh, just, you know, you can live with it or no big deal because it is a big deal. And I made sure never to brush over that. But at the same token, it's a delicate balance. I wanted to acknowledge that he hates the way they look. He's not happy. He, it's stiff. He can't move. He, he, you know, he had to actually work back to getting full mobility again. I mean, that was a lot of effort on his part. And, um, but I wanted him to know that these scars are something that you, we, need, we all need to honor them. We all need to honor that he's, he's a badass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Survivor. And a, and a, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, Anybody that goes through this, and I've met uh, several burn survivors at this point because he and I, at six months, we volunteered at a burn camp. And um, I'm telling you, the day before the burn camp, (laughs) we both sat on the couch and we looked at each other and said, what the heck did we just do? And we bawled our eyes out. We're like, "What what if I can't hold it together? What if I see a child and I want to cry and, you know, uh, Am I going to act appropriately? Am I going to want to break down every two seconds or or whatever? Well, we went. We were fine, you know. But um, the resilience of a burn survivor is is crazy. I mean, they have you exercising right through the pain. Because if you don't, you you get the um, scar contractures get stiff. And if you don't keep stretching them, you won't be able to move. And so they, they, right through the whole thing, they have to stretch. So the more it hurts, yay, you know, no pain, no gain kind of thing. And it's, it's asking a lot. But those little kids, um, because scars don't grow every couple, uh, every couple months, every couple of years, they have to get surgeries to release the scars so that they can grow. So it's not a once and done thing. It's for the, you know, a good deal of their growing life until they stop growing. And if you get fat or something like that, you know, so they, so they're resilient. All of them are very resilient. Um, some of them don't fare well, and some of them just get this, uh, very persevering kind of attitude, which is, is, 
exactly what you would think would be the opposite, you know, that this would break them. And for a lot of them, it doesn't break them. It makes them stronger. And so it's really crazy paradigm shift when you see it that way. So this was age six to 16 year olds that, and you, you guys went and did a work, a workshop based off that scar jewelry that you created for Chris. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, um, I presented it to, it's called Camp Susquehanna, which is a burn camp for children. And I presented it thinking that they're probably going to think I'm nuts because it is one of those ideas like, really, you want to make jewelry from the scars? I mean, some people might think that's a little odd, but the result was just incredible. Um, With the little kids, I had them pair up. And we talked about it, you know, we talked about their scars. And at the time, I'm learning how to talk to scarred burn survivors. I wasn't sure of the right or the wrong things to say. So I just was honest and I said, you have to help me because now I have a burn, I have two burn survivors in my family and I need to know how to talk to them. Because again, you cannot blow by the fact that they're very unhappy about what happened to them and that some people are disfigured for the rest of their life. You cannot blow by that. So anyway, um, our motivational conversation talked about how they're really bad now. I mean, how they went through such tough things and came out the other side. And this burn camp is wonderful because, you know, these kids are getting teased and whatnot at school for the way they look or whatever. Here they could take off their shirt. They can go swimming. They, I think there's jet skis. I mean, tightrope walking, all this daring stuff. And these kids are doing it all. And so they, they're able to let loose a little bit. But when it came to the scars, they hide them. They're hiding them. They don't want to show them. So I had, uh, getting back to the kids, they, I paired them up. And what they needed to do after we had this long motivational conversation about their warrior scars and things like that and how, you know, how we're honoring them now and, and whatnot, they needed to pair up and, and help each other find the best candidate for the scar jewelry, which basically is the more typography to the scar the better the jewelry comes out. And so the conversation got so interesting because as they're pointing out worse looking scars, they're using the language like, oh, this one is better. So that right there is a paradigm shift, like the things that are supposed to be so horrible and so grotesque for them that they're able to turn around and go, oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's even better. So then, you know, they helped each other mold their scars. And like the teenagers that did it, they went private and molded their scars. They didn't pair up. You know, it was a very private thing. But then um, they wrote on the back of them little messages about their experiences and things like that. They could write whatever they wanted. And some of them put little poems on. Somebody gave their bracelet to their girlfriend. I mean, what an intimate gift to give is is something so personal. But at the end, when they got their jewelry back, um, there was like, it was like a frenzy of kids running around camp saying, look at my jewelry and now feel my scar. So not only were they looking at it and comparing it, but they were feeling it. And the feedback from some of the parents afterwards was just, it was a high. 
<laughs> it was just really great. One of them said, my daughter, she's showing all of her friends at schools and what has shifted her attitude about her scars. And just that whole thing makes me want to do it again and again and again, because it was such a change in, in their attitude. That is so, so cool. I mean, just to completely flip it like that and, and say, well, no, this scar is better. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool, Holly. So you guys are going to, you're going to be doing more of this, do you think? It was, sounds like it well, was healing we, for you too. We've been doing it and um, there's two things that we're going, we're, we're getting trained in. One is to be, you know, COVID has stopped us from doing a lot of stuff because nobody is seeing anybody. But we're going to get trained at the Boulder Crest Foundation, which is, it, it teaches mental health training for growth. So it, it when, when we found this guy, Richard Tedeschi, who in the 1990s, coined the term post-traumatic growth. Once we got a book and we're reading about it, we just got more and more interested in, in how this works. And so this foundation has a program where there's several different levels of people that can go. You can be a, a person that's trying to learn how to use this your injuries to your benefit. And then there's people that can get trained to help people through this. So I thought this kind of training in conjunction with the jewelry would just make, make the program stronger. It's like this whole new thing opening up for both of you through this event. It feels right. And the thing is like, at, at first the whole jewelry idea just seemed like it's either, you know, when somebody goes, is this horribly ugly or horribly beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> how are they going to take it? You know what I mean? And um, the way, so when I did it the first time, it's just like, is this, you know, can this, is this going to completely flop or is this going to be something that is mind changing? So when it went to the mind changing area, uh, you know, that felt good because I, you know, the whole, the whole camp thing was scary to begin with, but um, I, I was so glad that people could recognize the beauty in it, because when you look at the jewelry, you can't, you can't really tell it's a scar. It, again, it looks like what jewelers call reticulation where, um, it's just, it, it's a little, it's textured and things like that. And when it's in silver, it's really beautiful. And are they setting stones on? Have you done any of that yet? Yeah, we've okay. done that. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, it's really and then, you know, there was a couple kids that wanted to do jewelry, I mean, as their expression. So the way t Chris took on lapidary as his form of art therapy, um, the kids can express themselves if they want to. There was one, there was one of the kids that said, oh, can I be your, can I work for you? And there's a rule <laughs> at camp, you know, you're not allowed to continue the relationships past camp for, I think it's emotional reasons and things like that. So, you know, I wasn't allowed, but. But you planted some seeds. Yeah. I did. I did. And this kid was, some of the kids were so talented. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just not about, they were coming up with, like, I had a set thing. And I had to come up with a plan so if somebody didn't have function 
of a part of their body that they could still do it. So I had to make the lesson in such a way that anybody could do it. So that was, that was a, an interesting challenge. <laughs> I love that Chris too found uh, lapidary work as his art therapy after this event and recovery. Uh, you well, were saying it kind of helped him turn his, turn his mind off a little bit and just sink into the, the rough and the stone carving and, so well, he's cutting for your work now? and Oh, I right. wish. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I get a stone here and there because he, he likes me, but he mostly <laughs> sells them. <laughs> oh, wow. So he's making a living with this therapy. I he love is. It. It, it's, it is really cool because I think his first uh, impression was, now what? What am I going to do with myself? I mean, I used to cook and... You know, now what am I going to do? And the way that started was because he had no mobility in his arms. He could not, he could only lift them uh, parallel to his chest. He couldn't lift them all the way up over his head. So he could do the lapidary because that is chest high activity. So he got okay by the doctor. You know, initially um, when he first asked, they said no because of the the debris and water and, and things like that. Um, was not safe for his bandages and whatnot. But but then he asked again. They said, okay, you can do it. <laughs> and he took a couple lessons, but for the most part, there's a lot of self-teaching and a couple stones flew around here and there. But <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like a natural, easy transition. But now he's he, he works with cultured opals and he's got the touch. He's got nice. it down pat now, but you know, was a thing, you know, a, a couple of times, why am I doing this? Uh-huh. <laughs> My nuts. <Yeah. laughs> and I think we all go through those moments. I mean, I've, I've certainly gone through those moments. Well, am I a crazy person? What am I trying to do? You know, my friend calls those the skinny spots, like the, the point where you just want to chuck the stone across the room or, you know, or it chucks itself. Right. But, or you just want to put, you know, it's like, why am I doing that? I can't do, I can't, I can't. And then if you can work through that one spot, I feel like things start to kind of fall in place, you know? Well, um, it's, it's working through the ugly stage. That's what I call it with my students. Like a lot of times you have this vision in your head and it's like, ah, and then you look down in front of you and you see, ah, and I'm like, okay, it's just the ugly stage. You've got to work through it. You will get to the nice stage, but you're just not there yet. You've got to give it that opportunity to, to develop further. Working through the ugly. <laughs> Working through the ugly stage. Oh, you're we're definitely no stranger to that, Holly. And I'm just so impressed with you guys and, and the choices that you've made to, to offer this Scar Warrior class. And I mean, I just think that is just such a beautiful spin on such a scary event. Something yeah. that could be, you know, devastating to us. And I think you are just, you and Chris both are just such a, a strong proof that we can kind of get through a lot. And I think especially now with COVID, it's it's not, you know, we all have that PTSD from COVID. And I think yeah. if we can look into this uh, PTS growth. I, I think, <laughs> you know, something, yeah. I really think it's it's true. I, don't, I think there is a lot of people... Um, that are having difficulties right now. And I saw it through my classes, but, you know, you, I think you need a, a positive way of dealing with it. And I'm hoping that all the things that we learn at this, um, at this one session is going to help. 
And because I think that'll only better what we're doing. And then the other thing that we're going to do is it's from the Phoenix Society. They have a peer support program and it teaches you how to talk. And, you know, I've been talking to my husband for all this time and my son, but it teaches you, you know, the triggers for some people, it's going to be different for each person. So, you know, the best way to approach difficulty and things like that. So between the two programs, I think they will have that foundation. And I think both of us you know, uh, the way a lot of my classes go now, I think that there is a therapeutic aspect to them. So it feels very natural to do more of that. And um, so I'm looking forward to it. And and I will mention that, you know, we talked about the, the support of the community. Seriously, they're Rio, and this is sort of funny, but Rio sent me a plant. And I, it, you know, my, my place is where things come to die if, in the plant world. <laughs> and it's been, for some odd reason, it's been super important for me to keep this thing blooming and alive. And it's beautiful. It's gotten huge. It's flowers and things like that. Wow. But, but the fact that, that really I'm a pinprick in there, a cog of the, you know, of the machinery and for them to reach out to me and especially Molly Bell, who got me in contact with surf when you're in trouble, um, which is a surf plus, which is a wonderful organization. If you're having any issues or problems financially and things like that. I mean, we definitely were at the height of that. And, um, the, the community is really beautiful. It's a really beautiful community. And, um, I, you know, every every year when our anniversary comes around, I do a gratitude event um, because to me, I, I could never pay it all back. I just know that, but I can pay it forward. And um, the, I was given just so much. So every year, so I, I do plan on a, a gratitude event. And so I'll be doing some free things, that some webinars and stuff like that, that people can attend in the next month. Awesome. What's the uh, best way to keep in in touch with with all that you're doing and uh, online, would you say? Um, I have a sign-up letter, newsletter at the bottom, and that's how I communicate with most most people through the sign-up sheet. I'm not a spammer. I don't have time for it. (laughs) (laughs) So usually when I have a new class or a new blog, I really like, you know, the whole blog came out of the need to give back, you know, just to give out information. I'll do videos every once in a while, not class videos, but little, little tidbit videos, you know, little technique here or there that those are all efforts to give back to a community that I couldn't possibly fulfill how much they've given to me, but it's really important to me every day. I think about every day and that may sound not, not real, but really every day. I, I just can't believe it. And I think you can understand because of what you've gone through. I mean, you don't do that. You don't make it through this stuff alone. No, and we don't have to. Yeah, yeah. It's really a lot to be grateful for. You know, is that? Oh wow, we're not alone. You know, something like this comes up in your life, and I feel like the the outpouring of your community. I mean, we had just so many people lined up to help. It was amazing, and That's so cool. and I saw that happening with you too. And I just thought, wow, we are we're really in this wonderful 
collective here, you know, that, that spreads beyond even our own little bubble, you know, that we realize. So, well, it was a big realization, um, with that kind of support. It, I, you know, you think oh, if something ever happened, who'd be there for you. And it's like, wow, I had no clue. You right. Know, we had no yeah. clue. Yeah. And who shows yeah. up is always different than what we expect to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. well, Holly, is there anything else you want to share with us before we, uh, before we say goodbye today and well I guess I'll say this with with the program that we're doing we're trying to keep it free for the burn survivors or and it's not just necessarily burn survivors now it's anybody that's dealt with trauma because the uh, Boulder Crest Foundation works with uh, first responders like police and and firefighters because they see so much stuff I mean they got to see, Chris fresh out of whatever. And that is just crazy. So, you know, it's nurses. I mean, going through this whole COVID thing, there's a lot of trauma taking place now. And so we would, would like to broaden it to anybody that could, you know, benefit from that. But the whole idea is we want to keep it free for the recipient. So, you know, we're, we're hooking up with this organization. We're hooking up with uh, the Phoenix Society, which is the, the umbrella burn, international burn community leader. And um, we're trying to figure out how to, to get metal clay donated, to get tools donated and things like that. And so that that's our next task. That's our next challenge is how do we bring this to the burn survivors so that they don't have to pay for anything. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. So Sounds hopefully like a through nonprofit in the making a little bit there, Holly. Maybe. Oh gosh, that sounds big. Because <laughs> <laughs> you need one more thing, you know. Well, I know the um, the camp is absolutely free for those kids. For a whole week, they get to have delicious food and all these activities, and everything is donated and things like that. So there's a way. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know how far we'll get, but there's there's a lot of very generous people in the community and um, that have already offered to help, and and that's huge. You know, I just have to be brave enough to, okay, do, you know, if you want to help, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. So that's hard. That's hard. That's hard for me. <laughs> well, practice makes perfect, yeah. And <laughs> I, I think that it's amazing, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by this and would love to help however I can, Holly. So keep us all posted, and you guys can, um, Holly, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, of course. Uh, she has a YouTube page. We're going to put all this in the text as well. And hollygage.com, best way to see your work and blog is there, correct? And Yeah, I have a yeah. good tech blog. I've awesome. been keeping up with it. <laughs> that was my promise to myself. Keep up with it. Yeah, well, you start something, you want to follow it through. Well, keep us posted there or however, and and you guys stay tuned and, and uh, let's... Let's all pay it forward, as Holly says, and see what we can do to help, I think, help you push this forward. The healing for you and for so many others I could see in the future. And just love you guys to death. Thank you so much for spending oh, love time you with too. us today. You, your yeah. family's so wonderful. Oh, yours <laughs> I, I couldn't believe when I saw your kids. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
Uh, first of all, they're big, but second of all, for them to go, I love you, like both of them. That was so cool. <laughs> we get a lot of I love yous around here. And I think being cooped up during COVID was a kind of a, there was some silver linings with that. You know, we just got so connected and used to just being around each other all the time and through school and work and all of it and respecting each other's space too, which is really, I think, really important as a they become adults and young men. It's like, well, you're going to have roommates. You've got to do your dishes, you know, <laughs> and just, yeah, the amount of respect and love that they're growing into such wonderful young men. And I feel very lucky, um, but they're growing too fast. Holly, how do you make it stop? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, no tricks there. Yeah, no <laughs> I don't know how there. to stop it. Yeah. Well, Holly, again, thank you so much and um, onward and upward to you and Chris and all your endeavors and uh, thanks again for your time today so good to hear from you you and i will be in touch i'm sure oh always (laughs) thanks for tuning in you guys i hope you have enjoyed this episode of for the love of jewelers stay tuned for the next episode by subscribing through spotify itunes or by searching podcast at riograndecom i encourage you to rate us write a review and share with friends and colleagues I hope you're all finding ways to stay inspired. I'm your host, Courtney Gray. Until we get to connect again, onward and upward.